America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. Not true in 2020, though. Maybe it is. Hey, welcome to the Daily Attic Podcast, everybody. It's your boy, Tim, and your boy, Dave. Hey. And today we have a very special guest, our usual special guest, which is Claudia Mirandi. Welcome, Claudia. And hey, guys. We also have Colleen Cowles, uh, the author of The War on Us. And if you listen to our show, you've heard her name before. You've heard the book before. By the way, our last guest just bought that book while he was on the air. He did. <laughs> he did. Great to hear. <laughs> yes. So welcome, Colleen. It's a pleasure having you on. Great to be here. Awesome. Um, so if a lot of our listeners know about uh, your book, because I've talked about it since I bought it earlier this year. Matter of fact, Claudia's read it as well. And um, I know you did a lot of research on this book. You had to have. How, mm-hmm. What was that like? How, how long did it take to get everything together to even start something like this? Well, the official research was about a year and a half. The uh, practical and personal research was a couple of decades. Um, you know, little did I know when, when I started uh, researching this, um, you know, a few years ago and finished it you know, a few months ago that, that this topic would, would blow up and be on everybody's mind. And, and I'm really glad that that happened. Uh, and it's, it's about time that people started noticing what's going on because it's a lot of what happens goes on behind closed doors. And, and unless it, it, it really hits your family, a lot of people are just not aware of, of what's going on. Um, but with the, the George, George Floyd situation, uh, I think it helped people to understand the depth of the problem. But if I hadn't been researching this for as long as I, I have and kind of living some of the, the issues, um, I think I'd be really confused right now. You know, because uh, I think th- there was a lot of of uh, um, sympathy and kind of understanding when we saw that that horrific video, um, but now there's so many conflicting political agendas that I think people are asking themselves why you know why is the anger so intense and and are there actually are there actually answers are there solutions to all of you know this mess that we're in and 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 so all that's covered in the book and I I hadn't planned the timing you know quite like uh, like it happened but I really hope that that my research can help people to, to really understand the depth of what's going on and, and that there are some solutions to it. So, um, so that's, uh, that's my goal. Colleen, for the pain community who's going to be tuning into this, your son was um, diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis. Correct. And is that how um, his journey was, I don't like to use the word journey, but is that how was his diagnosis somehow, did it lead to his addiction? Well, it was actually the other way around for, for our family. Um, it took over 20 years to get a, an accurate diagnosis for him. Mm-hmm. So we had him all over, um, you know, when he was seven years old, he would wake up screaming in, in pain in the middle of the night. And we were told everything from, oh, it'll go away, it's growing pains, to, uh, you know, after five to ten years, we had him all over but that was, you know, he's in his 30s now. So, you know, that was back in the days where, where people weren't aware of autoimmune diseases. Although even now, I mean, the average uh, um, time to, to correctly diagnose a lot of those, those um, 
uh, you know, those health issues is, is, uh, sometimes up to a decade. So, so he was, he was frustrated by the time he was in his late teens, he'd kind of given up on doctors. He was still in pain. And so he was self-medicating. And I think that happens in a lot of cases. I mean, when, when I looked at the statistics, uh, either it's chronic pain and they haven't gotten appropriate help, uh, through the medical community. And that's gotten a lot worse because of war on drugs and the expansion of it to, to cover pain patients now. Um, but people aren't, aren't getting the help that they need medically. So they self-medicate and then they end up with the criminal justice system, uh, penalizing them and, and further taking away their, their access to, uh, to decent medical care. And so uh, it, we, if we if we wanted to design uh, a system, um, and I don't remember the exact quote, but Gamar Mate, who's a um, renowned uh, addiction specialist, he said that if we wanted to design a, a system that would escalate uh, addiction and, uh, and pain, it would be the system we've got. And I, I so totally agree with that, um, you know, based on the, the research that I've done. We, just, we couldn't have a worse approach for any I of us. I have to mention this. When I was reading your book, as a mom, my first thought was, oh, my God, this could be my kid. My daughter could be at the wrong place at the wrong time, make a bad decision, and end up in the system. And once you're in the system, you're not getting out of the system. Yeah. And But if you throw being black on top of that, mm-hmm. now and you're a male, forget it. You don't yeah. have a chance. I was I was getting enraged as I was reading it. My stomach was turning because I said, "Oh my god, this this is nothing but a failed war on drugs, and it's money, money, money. Let's arrest somebody for a, an ounce of weed. Let's send them to prison, and then the probation, and then the parole, and then the driver's license. How there's no chance of survival." And yeah, that's, I know. that's so true. And I think a lot of parents don't realize, especially um, if you're not part of the black community, I think the, the black community has, has been living with this in, in the horrendous results of it for so many years that, that they're aware of it. Um, you know, it's been very difficult for them to do anything about it. Um, but even the, the white middle class parents better be aware um, because right now, I mean, one in three Americans right now has a has a, a criminal record. I mean, just think about that. One in three have a criminal record. Once you've got a criminal record, it impacts career choices. It, it impacts, uh, uh, well, it, it, everything. I mean, it, it, it impacts every aspect of your life. Uh, and, and parents that are, are uh, not paying attention to this uh, in just one generation, uh, and your child is three times more likely to be arrested before age 23 uh, than, than one generation ago. Uh, and, mm. and they've done studies, and one arrest uh, as a, either an, an adolescent or a young adult, um, the studies, and they've, they're, they're very extensive studies, uh, and you'll end up making $11,000 a year less for life. Uh, you're, there's a, a 3.5% drop in the chance of, uh, of marriage, um, I mean, this is really serious stuff, and some of it's really minor uh, kinds of things. And, and a lot of times when I talk to people um, with my legal background, I'm, I'm, I'm in contact with prosecutors and, and the criminal justice system uh, uh, professionals. And a lot of them say, well, you know, it's only a few days. It's only, it's only 30 days in jail. What, you know, what's the big deal? Um, it, it's a horrendous deal. I mean, it actually changes life for, for people. It changes their identity. It's like a criminal university. Um, notwithstanding the fact that, that the suicide rates in county jails are absolutely frightening. 
Uh, and it's not after conviction. The, most of the suicides are right after arrest when they're holding them. And it's such a traumatic experience. And then we wonder why, uh, you know, people turn to drugs. Um, you know, wow. statistics tell us that trauma and isolation will, will lead, to, you know, can escalate addiction rates. So it's crazy. Yeah. Do you see any correlation between the drug policy and um, with and with the government's approach to COVID-19? Yes. And it's frightening for me because, I mean, I think I think anybody who is really uh, whichever end of the political spectrum and, and whichever whatever somebody believes about what they, you know, what should be done about COVID and whether you're wearing masks or not. It doesn't really matter because if you look at government getting involved in healthcare, and you look at the inconsistencies, the lack of clear goals. I mean, does anybody really know what the goal is anymore? I mean, the first month was flattened the curve. Now it's somehow morphed and none of us know. Um, and, and now we're talking about putting ankle bracelets on people who don't comply with policy that keeps changing and, and that doesn't have any scientific basis. Um, I, I think we've got to be really careful uh, I don't know what the answer is on COVID, and that's not my area of, of special. I see so many correlations between that and the war on drugs, where we started out saying, well, you know, we're really afraid that people might be hurt if they take drugs. Well, now we've got, you know, <laughs> we've got uh, the, the highest uh, incarceration rates in, in the world and the highest addiction rates and, and uh, the highest drug use, actually. So when we start having government stick their nose into our own medical care, we're really in trouble. <laughs> It's, it's, and the politicians, number one, they don't have the, the, the expertise. They're not meeting with a patient one-on-one like a physician is. They don't have medical training. And bottom line is they're, they're trying to cover themselves because they're so afraid that if something bad happens to one person, they're going to get blamed. Mm-hmm. So they just want to be overly protective of everybody, even if it ends up escalating the, the overall damage. Um, so it's, it's frightening to me. It's really frightening to me to see us going. Um, I mean, it just seems like it keeps getting extended. First, we have the war on drugs uh, going after uh, people with addiction issues. And then, then we extended that to, to pain patients. And, and now we're, we're extending basically the same. And doctors, absolutely. Uh, medical providers are, are in a horrible position. And now we're exp- expanding it to anyone who might be sick. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's really scary. Yeah, it is, you know, and and some of the legislation that I've been working on, we, you know, one of my bills, the Department of Health inserted language, well, the doctor um, should know what a patient is doing with their medication. And when I testified, I said, I didn't know doctors needed to be clairvoyant. And my, my legislators looked at me like I, I said, I'm not the one who put this ridiculous language in here. Why would, how a doctor should know something? Um, and it's everybody's set up for failure. And this war on drugs affects every, it's not just, it just doesn't affect people and drugs. And I think that's where I didn't know this. And I was, I sat with us, I was in a courtroom for over 20 years. I didn't mm-hmm. know any of this was happening. I used to sit at my machine and say, guilty, 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 go to prison. Now mm-hmm. I look at it from every, point of view and this is really scary i know yeah. when i when, when i was reading your book my first thought was oh my god how do we affect change how mm-hmm. can we change these policies calling well and and i think there there are, are definitely 
solutions. Um, and and it, it, to me, it comes in, in a couple of parts. And, and one, of the, one of the solutions is doing exactly what we're doing right now, because until the general public really understands that they're one car accident or one surgery away from misery or one uh, misstep with their child uh, handing a, a drug to a buddy and having that buddy overdose and having your child go to life uh, for, to prison for life on a felony murder charge because uh, they're they're blamed for you know handing a, a drug to someone. Um, I mean, there's just so many ways that that people can be affected, but their their lives can be ruined before they even realize what's going on. So the first step is getting the public to really understand this, because once the public starts putting pressure on the politicians, then it's the politicians are no longer afraid of making a decision where they're going to be blamed for something, they're, they're going to be afraid that the decisions they're making, which are so crazy, um, are going to be recognized for that and, and that that's going to fall on their doorstep. So that's the first step to, to change. But then there's really two things that I think are, are two categories uh, of, of solutions. One is just stopping the, the carnage. Um, allowing doctors to deal with their patients, regardless of whether that's a, a physician that's treating someone uh, for substance use disorder. And it's really very similar because the best, most cost-effective and most effective treatment for substance use disorder right now is medications. And I think that confuses a lot of people. I mean, drugs are the answer to, to addiction. Um, but it's been proven in our own government uh, has has done the studies and, and told us that medications can cut overdose rates in half. Uh, and so, so whether it's a pain patient being denied their medications or whether it's a substance use patient being denied medications, we're really all in the same boat. So if we can get the government out of, of the, the doctor-patient relationship and go back to uh, uh, the circumstances where a doctor can uh, can do what they're, that what they're trained uh, to do, and not right. be pulled in all of these different directions. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of different steps that we can take that that I cover in the book as far as, as let's keep people alive. Um, things like distributing um, uh, naloxone, which is trade name Narcan, which is an overdose drug. Um, there's no downside to it. If somebody takes that that uh, um, drug, it's, it's uh, most frequently used as a nasal spray. It's not going to hurt somebody if they're not overdosing. But if they are overdosing, it will save their life. Sure. Um, but, but an example of that, um, we, I, a few years ago, um, I went to Walgreens after the legislation changed so that you could get that without a prescription. Mm-hmm. Um, so I walked in figuring I could, you know, it would be relatively easy to, uh, to pick that up. I wanted to carry it since I'm speaking on these, this issue all the time. And if I ever see someone overdosing, I would like to save a life. It, it's the first time that I've ever really experienced the level of stigma that's out there. And I walked up to, uh, to the counter at Walgreens and, and they, they looked at, and, and I'm not, you know, there, there are probably wonderful people working at Walgreens. My experience was, was, uh, just one example of, of, I think what sometimes happens just generally to people with the stigma, but I was kind of looked up and down, like, why would you need this? And, you know, and, and, uh, are you a, a drug user and, you know, why do you need this and, and all of that? Um, and then they said, no, we don't have it. I mean, if you really want it, we, we might be able to order it for you, um, you know, which is kind of a problem if you need a, a, a drug to stop a, an overdose. I mean, having it on back order might not be a good idea. Uh, but I walked out into the parking lot and a young man followed me and he said, ma'am, if you need Narcan, I, I can give you some. And it led to a 45 minute 
conversation with this with this man that had had. He was very similar to my son in that he'd had some medical issues and uh, it, but had been picked up with uh, with some some uh, uh, drugs in his pocket. Um, but I, you know, he was more civil than than the people that I had had uh, run into where I was trying to to do things um, accurately. And um, and he shared his information with me and, and ultimately shared uh, shared Narcan. I, mean, I kind of felt like I was being, doing a drug deal in the parking lot <laughs> to, to get a life saving drug. Um, but it's, it's heartbreaking. I, f- I followed him, and he's in prison now. Oh, uh, he wow. didn't have the support system. Um, he wasn't allowed to take the medications that he needed for, and, and he was a chronic pain patient, uh, and he also had um, some emotional issues, largely because of the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. Um, but he didn't—he didn't have a chance. Mm. Um, so it's—it's it, it, it's really, it's really heartbreaking. Um, but you know, just, so just seeing what happens. It's just so bothersome. I, you know, I just want to mention. I know the guys have questions for you, Colleen. You know, in Rhode Island, we're really pushing to decriminalize drugs. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I advocate all the time for people, um, the pharmacist, when they go to pick up their pain medication, they have to pay an extra $200 to get Narcan filled. Yeah. So w- we feel that push in the pain community. And on mm-hmm. every bus in Rhode Island, we see medicated, assist, uh, you know, Medicaid, Matt, Matt yep. help. Yep. And for a pain, you know, when I first started advocating, there was this hate for the, the addiction community because the anti-opioid mm-hmm. crusaders have pitted the addicts against the pain patients because the pain patients feel like, wait a minute, we take our medication responsibly and mm-hmm. we're suffering and the only medication we can receive is Suboxone, which is a medication that you should receive and you're not able to receive it. Yeah, we yeah and that's... That that is such a, a a great point on so many levels, because the, number one, when when we're pitted against, you know, when the two groups are pitted against one another, and so often people belong to both of those groups, but even Absolutely. if they don't, um, and and that that comment eaten in itself can be um, misinterpreted because when when sometimes I when I say that I have to clarify because I don't want to imply that just because someone is a chronic pain patient or needs pain medications that they have an addiction issue. Most don't, um, and the statistics bear that out. Um, but you know, forcing Narcan on on anyone is ridiculous. Not making it available is also ridiculous. It should be an over the counter drug that's very inexpensive, so that if someone wants it, they can easily go in and get it without you know being stigmatized. Um, but it certainly shouldn't be pushed down anybody's throat. Uh, and as far as the Suboxone, if the logic here is that we want people to be doing fewer drugs or to be ha- being um, uh, improve their health, whether it's, it's pain or whether it's, it's substance use disorder, why in the world would we make someone take Suboxone who does not have an addiction issue where there's, a, there's extra medication in Suboxone? I mean, it's basically an opioid, but, but there's a... There's a yeah, it's a, it's an, an additional medication uh, in the Suboxone to prevent overdose. But there are a lot of people who will react to that medication. So we're forcing more medication on a pain patient than what they need for their individual circumstances, and it, it can compromise their health. Also, the the uh, uh, the pain medication in Suboxone it can help, but it certainly isn't the level. Of, of medication that someone should be receiving when they go to their physician 
Um, I mean, since when do we have bureaucrats who feel like they know more about what a pain patient or a substance use patient should have for their individual medical needs? Uh, I mean, unless all of our politicians are, are, uh, are physicians and want to meet individually with that patient, there is no way that they're not going to destroy lives and, and kill people. Uh, by making these these kinds of decisions. But I, I would really love to see the pain community and the substance use community. And then there's a whole other community out here of responsible drug users who uh, who choose to to use some some uh, drugs um, who aren't hurting anyone. Um, and so we've got a, a third component here. Hey, hey, uh, hey, hey I, these- I resemble that remark. <laughs> <laughs> we've got the other we've got the third component with us but you know what my mom is 85 and she said well why can't somebody take drugs if they want to take drugs exactly exactly and I looked at her i said you know i never asked that question she said what's the big deal if you want to smoke the marijuana she calls it the marijuana she said, why can't you smoke the marijuana i said yeah. i don't feel it we're not in a democracy I feel yeah. like everything, it, we're in a dictatorship. You know, there's this big push for all pain patients. You get one medication, you get buprenorphine, or you yeah. get nothing. Yeah. And I think, what? why? When there's oxycodone, that costs $3. But when I try Well, and you're, you're looking for logic, though, and there is no there's logic no in this. No that, that's what really confused me when I first started. And you know, when you said you, were, you had sat in a courtroom for, for years and, you know, and, and hadn't really understood all of the things that went, went on. I'm an attorney by trade. I, I, I work with people in all aspects of the legal community. And I'll tell you, just about everyone sees their little piece of it, as did I. And until you're actually, I mean, the, the, the reason that, that I was kind of uniquely uh, able to, to research this book is that we lived it with my family, then I researched it, and then I worked with clients, not in criminal defense, um, but actually in estate planning and business transition, but I saw families whose, whose assets were being depleted trying to save their kids. Um, so I was seeing all aspects of it, and I was seeing the real-life disaster this, that this is creating. Um, but if we're looking for logic, um, it, it, it doesn't, there is none there because it's all political, economic, um, you know, and depends on the, on the idea of the day. Because if, if there was any logic whatsoever, you wouldn't have cannabis as a Schedule One drug <laughs> and fentanyl as a Schedule Two. I mean, this is nuts. <laughs> we yeah. went over, and when we went over the, when we went over the uh, schedule, the drug schedule in one of our episodes, and that took up an entire episode because it was just the research and the Ridiculous. way these drugs are used. The research is non-existent. But the other thing yeah. is uh, the way the drugs are all lumped in together, like they all do the mm-hmm. same thing. And that's that's a lot of this problem. A lot of the problem we mm-hmm. have is you got the big three, which are alcohol, tobacco and nicotine. Totally mm-hmm. okay to do that. You can go smoke yourself into chronic lung disease. You can drink yourself into cirrhosis of the liver, and you can drink mm-hmm. a much enough caffeine to harden your arteries from head to toe. No big deal, right? But when yeah. you get into the drugs that all are for specific things, for for other specific things, and there's stimulants and psychedelics and all this stuff like that, it really starts to make sense that this is a very purposeful thing. And we yeah. have on on our show we have Matt Frazier. He's he's uh, 
he heads up a website called drugtruthaustralia.org. And his, when we interviewed him, his, um, his view of the whole war on drugs, because it's a worldwide war on drugs. It, is, it isn't just the United States. Uh, they're busted everywhere. No, unfortunately, Every, we, we exported it. We, yeah, right. yeah, we, yeah, we exported our thing. And we're the biggest consumer. So that's the that's mm-hmm. the ironic part. But like in the Philippines, they kill you if you use drugs. You know, yeah. Rodrigo Duterte will kill you if you're doing meth. But you can go to the bar, and as long as you're as tall as uh, tall as the bar, you can drink alcohol. You can drink alcohol yeah. when you're 10 years old in the Philippines. You just don't do meth. So I think mm-hmm. when you look at it and you're trying to make sense, like Claudia is trying to make sense of this thing, like we're trying to make sense. And the more and the more, and the, the deeper down the rabbit hole I go, I start thinking back to Matt Frazier that this is a criminal enterprise system that is doing a very good job because we say the drug, the war on drugs is a huge failure. Not if it's mm-hmm. intentional, if it's intentional, if they, want, if they want to create a criminal class where one out of three people have a criminal record and they can control you, then yeah. that, that is the best way. What we, what we just did was the best way to do it. So I, I start thinking about these things. I put all these things together in my mind and I'm starting I'm not all the way there yet. That is something constrite, like, you know, there's some mastermind secret organization. Have you ever ever read the, um, have you ever um, read the, the uh, Ehrlichman quote from the the Nixon administration when they declared the war on drugs? Yes. When he was, yes. Is that the chief, his chief of staff when he was in, when he went to jail or whatever, when he was talking about, uh, the hippies and the and stuff like is that is that what you're talking yeah, about? I've, I've yeah, I've got that in front of me. So if you it's no, like, please. take a minute, I'll, I'll read that because no. I think it's important for people to realize, you know, what you're talking about as far as the intentionalness of of, of what's happening. It's a very before, important. Before yes. I do that, it's it's not just the Nixon administration. It's not just one one. Uh, party or the other. I mean, Joe Biden was the the architect of of escalation of the drug oh, war. Jesus. So it's it's a yes. it's a dual party failure. Um, but here's the Ehrlichman quote: The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies: the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin. And then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about drugs? Of course we did. Yeah. That was that was featured in that documentary thirteenth. Mm. And yes, yeah. you know, when I after I watched that and after reading Colleen's book, I really started, you know, it gives you something to think about. This is very scary. I think I'm more, uh, this scares me from a, a mother's point of view, more than a pain patient's point of view, more than advocating for my doctors behind prison, because you don't have a chance once you're in the system. My sister-in-law is a prosecutor. She was one of the best. And I used to applaud her for her work as a prosecutor. Now I feel mm-hmm. dirty for thinking that, right? <laughs> I feel like I've been so misled my whole life about the war mm-hmm. on drugs. And all of this started in the Nixon administration yeah, yeah. with the Controlled Substances Act and how it's yeah. been weaponized. 
Well, let's. I, let, I think a lot of times let, people think that this has been going on forever, but in the 1890s, the Sears and Roebuck catalog uh, offered a syringe and a small amount of cocaine for a buck and a half. I know. You know, and, and it's funny we didn't have an overdose crisis at that no. point. But if you think about it, and what what a lot of people don't talk about a lot uh, is uh, Harry Anslinger. So if you even yeah. go back further than Nixon and you go to Harry Anslinger, once mm-hmm. they ended prohibition of alcohol, he needed a new, a new boogeyman. And exactly. he was extremely racist. I mean, if anything, yeah. if anything that people should be doing right now in, the, in, this, in this world we're living in, when you're talking about race and what happened and the disparity and everything, they need to focus and look on Harry Anslinger. And they don't need yeah. to go destroy all the Harry Anslinger statues. They need to take his <laughs> quotes. They need to take his quotes. They need to take what he's done in his body of work as a as a government official and they need to plaster these social media sites with it they need to cover it mm-hmm. because people need to know where this came from and it's well and it, all those quotes are in the book if anybody's looking yes, for them they are, and, and, and I, a lot of it, that yes. well a lot of that came out of, of prohibition and if we really think about this in in 1919 we needed a constitutional amendment to create alcohol prohibition why didn't we need a constitutional amendment for the war on drugs Good point. Now, have we really backslid that far? And one of the, the beauties of alcohol prohibition is that because it was an amendment, we could revoke the amendment, uh, you know, with, with another amendment, um, and end it in 1933. But then we have this government bureaucracy, including Anslinger, who need jobs. So they're looking for something to do. So that really was... Um, the beginning of, of uh, you know, a lot of, of, it wasn't officially called the war on drugs at that point, but that was originally, um, you know, where we really started to escalate. Uh, and, and you can track it historically as far as which, which minority group they were, they were uh, targeting. Every time. I just want to go back just a second, uh, Colleen, because I want to talk about when Claudia asked, how do we get out of this? And, yeah. and, uh, the number one thing you said is pu- educate the public. And I think that's, I think yeah. that is spot on, but I just have a new, I just got a new view because we just interviewed, uh, before this interview, we interviewed Joe Cervant, uh, Cervantes. He is a dis he's running for district attorney in Jackson County, Illinois. He's been a prosecuting attorney. He's been a defense attorney. And when I asked him the same question, he had a interesting answer. He said, the, the DA and, or the state's attorneys have all the power to enforce these laws. So that mm-hmm. would be the first thing I would attack. I would attack these when you start, you know, you start putting, putting people in front of government offices, when you really start looking at who you're voting for, for these positions. And when you ask exactly. them the tough questions, that can be almost like an immediate change. And that sparked something in my brain. I said, you know what, you're, that, I've never thought of that, but you're right. He said they're kind of like the central hub in the in the criminal justice system right now, because they're the, the ones prosecutors, that prosecutors. Yes, they have more power than than anyone else, yes. including the judges. By the way, yes, because ninety seven percent of the cases are are uh, are concluded by a, a plea agreement. Yeah. Um. But we've got. I mean, think about the prosecutors, and this is this is where a lot of the prosecutors don't really understand how much harm they're doing. Um, there's there's 1.6 million arrests, drug arrests in the, the country every year. 1.4 million of those are, are possession only. So these are, are going across their desk. How many minutes per case do you think those prosecutors have to look at these cases? And so and the, the, the sanctions are so incredibly severe 
that no one can afford uh, to, to take the risk of going to trial, let alone the cost and the, the emotional anxiety and delay and everything else. So they accept plea agreements. Yeah. And once that plea agreement is accepted, you go in front of the judge, the judge accepts the plea agreement. You know, I, I, I talk to a lot of parents who say, well, once we go in front of the judge, he'll get it. He'll realize how bad this is. The judges rubber stamp that plea agreement because if they don't, the system will implode. Yeah. You know, so you're absolutely right. There's a lot of power. And there are some prosecutors, by the way, that are saying, I'm not going to prosecute this. Uh, it's, it's flooding the system. That's it's why not we love doing Joe. any good. But that's why we so, love yeah, Joe. He was a great guest. He's a great guy. This is a guy yeah. who grew up in Chicago at a very early age. He was an orphan. He lost his parents. He got into the uh, foster care system and then eventually into the juvenile system, uh, the criminal system and everything. And he came out of that. He's a high school dropout now. He's been a successful attorney on both sides of the law there. And he's running for DA in Jackson County and we support him. But we need to get more people in line with Joe. We need to get... Well, and I think when you're when you're voting for someone... Um, it is really important to really, really drill down on, on what they're proposing, because there's a lot of people who are talking about, oh, we need to improve things. You know, war on drugs is not working. I'll, I'll work to uh, to handle that. But drug court is a good example of that. I mean, that sounds like, well, we're going to we're going to work with people and, and find them treatment instead of sending them to jail. But in order to get funding for for drug court, uh, jail has to be part of the deal. And if you fail drug court, which means you might have missed an appointment or relapsed or there's any number of ways that you can fail drug court, you'll probably do more time than if you hadn't agreed to drug court in the first place. And now we have people who say, well, you know, we've solved the problem. We don't have to have to, uh, to end the war on drugs. We have a compassionate way of dealing with it through drug court. Um, well, it's, that's, that's not the truth when you, you know, when you drill down in it, uh, even when you look at the success rates, they're only tracking the success rates of people who finish drug court, not the ones who, you know, who have problems in the, in the, uh, the middle of it and end up, mm. end up, uh, you know, being sent to jail or prison. I would love, so, I would love to get um, you and Joe on here talking about this subject because he's a proponent of drug courts and, but, but, uh, he, okay. but, he, but he also says but exactly what you're saying, but he he's for you have to dive in and get to know the person that you're charging. You have to know kind of their history. Well, and a lot of these and attorneys I, and judges, they just rubber stamp. They see the case, they see the crime, and they just rubber stamp it. Whether they're yeah, they don't have the time. They're, they're yep. not. Yeah, they're not getting in to say, hey, this person just lost a loved one. This person was in an auto accident. They were taking pain medication, and then this happened. Definitely. They're not a bad person. You know, they might have a couple thefts. But it's not a big deal. Well, and I would, I would probably, yeah, I would probably agree with Joe on most um, on most things as far as first level. And I'm really glad you brought me back to solutions because I kind of went off on a tangent there. But That's fine. with That's solutions, fine. the first level of solution um, is exactly what Joe is talking about. I mean, we are better off having you know some help within the system, but ultimately, the only solution is legalization. And I would go further than decriminalization. There's a big difference between decriminalization and legalization because yeah. decriminalization, uh, you know, you're not sending people to, to jail for possession, um, but you're still supporting the, the cartels because yeah. decriminalization doesn't make it legal to, to, you know, to, for the, to the manufacturer, uh, to manufacture it here. Exactly. So I, and people seem to be really afraid of that. But, you know, we've got people, like you said, that have problems with, with uh, alcohol. 
Yeah, alcohol, um, you know, alcohol is one of the most, and reading your book made me realize this, alcohol is one of the most dangerous drugs there is. Uh-huh. It is one of the Absolutely. most dangerous. And and one of the statistics I always use that I got out of your book, and I love it, is the, the first-time addiction rates. Because everybody thinks, mm-hmm. if I smoke crack, I'm going to be a crack addict. If I do meth, I'm going to be a meth yep. addict. And and it's staggering the numbers. And, and when I tell people, I say, you know the most addictive substance? nicotine 67% chance of being hooked on nicotine after one cigarette Mm -hmm. and they but but people when they receive that it's kind of they don't feel shocked they kind of know like oh yeah that makes sense you know well if we look at the cost of society of of uh of nicotine on you know it's it's larger than than any of the other the other drugs um but until we legalize where where we can have uh, someone other than the cartels who are the suppliers. It's, it's not. It's not even addiction that's that's killing people um, with overdose. It's the war on drugs because we're supporting the cartels and and they've got every incentive to uh, to cut their drugs with fentanyl because it's easier to smuggle over borders and it's it's, uh, oh, it's yeah. cheaper. Yeah. Um, you know, as far as getting the so uh, until we can put the the cartels out of business, and the only way of doing that is is treating you know all drugs on uh, you know as as uh, as legal drugs, letting people make their own decisions. Uh, you know, hopefully with medical care. Um, you know, but but a similar type of system where uh, where we can look at the the quantity and the the the, the strength and and all of, of those kinds of things, on um, uh, you know where where people aren't overdosing just because they can't get a, a reasonable supply. And this whole idea that we can uh, somehow um, free the world of drugs is not only unrealistic, but I'm not even sure it's a good idea because there are a lot of, of great medical uses for, for drugs. And we'd know a lot more about them if it wasn't for the war on drugs, minimizing the opportunity to be able to, to research uh, you know, the uses of, of, uh, of drugs and, and being able to help people medically. And so it's, it's, uh, um, it, yeah, it hurts people on all ends. Um, it Colleen, does. I want to ask you... Um, in your book, you give examples of destructive policies. Um, you mentioned drug tests, driver's license, plea agreements, criminal records, civil asset forfeiture, 72-hour hold pending bail. I've, I've not been, thank God, I've not been in trouble with the law. So this is all grief to me. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the, these policies and how we can... You know, if I call up my senator and I want to discuss these destructive policies, yeah. what's the conversation that a person is going to have with their senator? Because I'm a lay person yeah. with it. Um, and that's part of the reason that I wrote the book, because anybody that talks about these things, including the politicians who are you know, making these rules, really don't understand. I mean, they're getting there. What does a politician do if, if a, a grieving parent calls and says, um, you know, my, my child overdosed on drugs. I want you to do everything possible to stop, you know, anyone else from from uh, getting a drug. And I mean, that's a, that's an emotional, you know, pretty compelling argument to the, for the politician. The challenge is that most of the assumptions made by that grieving parent are wrong. Uh, and, and a, a lot of what, what uh, has caused that, that tragedy in that family was because of the very policies that that parent might 
you know, inaccurately be be requesting. Um, but civil asset forfeiture is a is a good example. On um, I could not believe it. It was funny when I was writing this book. I, I, as I was researching it, I'd, I'd walk out in, in the kitchen every once in a while, and, and you know, my my standard line was, "You're not going to believe this one." Uh, yeah. So, I, I mean, the, the statistics are just just you know, overwhelming. Um, but if you're going to talk to a politician, you've got to have the sites, you've got to have the statistics, you've got to have the proof because they otherwise they you know they're not going to believe you because this stuff is so crazy that that even the politicians don't believe it. Um, but here's an example on the civil asset forfeiture. Um, this is the government's ability to seize assets. You don't have to be charged with a crime. Uh, you don't have to, they don't have to prove anything. The only thing they need and they, is... And this is what they're doing with our doctors now. Dr. Yes. Dr. Smithers, they, they seized his assets. Mm-hmm. They terrorized him. He's in prison for 40 years. He does, there's no money. The family, the wife, there's no money because... Exactly, they, they seized the assets. Him. Yeah, they seized the assets. And, and with civil assets forfeiture, you aren't even able to get a public defender because the it's not a, a crime... Um, and if he's doing prison time, they, they also went after him criminally. But on the civil asset forfeiture, it's not considered a charge against you. It's not considered a criminal sanction. So you can't even, you don't have a right to, a, to an attorney to, to do anything about it. But the gut, in looking at the statistics, um, and the most recent statistic that's, that's out there, and I've, I've looked at, they haven't done the total compilation yet, um, but it has not improved in the, you know, since then. But in 2017, the government seized $8.2 billion in assets. You know how many assets were lost uh, to victims of burglary? $3.4 billion. So it's 2.4 <laughs> times more money that was seized by our government than burglaries. Wow. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's just absolutely astounding what's happening. Um, and it's very difficult to fight because how do you prove a, a negative? I mean, in order to, to get your assets back, you essentially have to show that your asset wasn't part of a crime. Well, how do you how do you prove a negative? You right. know, that's yeah. that's really really difficult. Um, and then the cascade effect of that. I mean, people driving cross country if you got cash in your car because you're going to you know buy something in another state or whatever, you can be pulled over and they can seize your cash and your car and everything else because if you have cash, you must be a drug dealer. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, and uh, Colleen, it's, Colleen, Colleen, correct me if I'm wrong, but in most of the time, if they're not busting a, you know, a cartel ranch or something extravagant like that, these are civil assets from like poor people anyway. I mean, they're not because we read mm-hmm. so many stories in one in particular, there was a billionaire that got busted in Las Vegas. He had a couple strippers. He had some coke. He had some meth. He had some shroom. He had a he had a nice variety mm-hmm. of recreational drugs. Any anybody else in this country would probably be, still be in jail for that. And we covered this last year, but I think it wasn't. I think this happened in 2017. He ended up pleading. He ended up, uh, you know, I don't want to say pleading. I want to say he ended up, uh, you know hedging up with the government uh, a different way so what he did he saw no jail time okay this is a billionaire he saw no mm-hmm. jail time he never went to jail but he donated five hundred thousand dollars to the local government so yeah. they could you know so they could That's fight so they could fight. Happens, huh? you know what i mean so anybody else yeah. so my point is why didn't you why didn't you take all his assets he's a billionaire yeah. you know you could mm-hmm. you could you could have got the eighth of your take in one in one arrest right there 
But no, because mm-hmm. this, because the way this war is structured and the way that it is in our cr- criminal justice system is, you know, the poor people that are addicts, the the small level dope dealers, those guys, those are the ones that are getting their cars taken, their TVs, cash. You know, you see a couple bundles of cash, or maybe even something over the. Yeah, remember, remember the sheriff yeah. around here when he would take cars. He would yeah. he would get stickers on the side saying that this car was taken from the local drug dealer, and he'd yeah. drive around town for yeah. a year. He would drive around in uh, you know a Mustang or something that they confiscated. So it's it's pretty. Well, that's sickening. part of the problem because yeah, the, the financial incentives for law enforcement right now are, are really kind of sad because uh, whether it's civil asset forfeiture, whether it's the grants, uh, whether it's the the promotions that that uh, the law enforcement gets. A drug arrest is an easier arrest than you know going after a violent criminal, right. uh, and uh, in and it, it plays well politically. You know, I'm I'm tough on crime. I'm going after those those uh, you know those drug dealers, uh, and it, it it so it, it's very difficult to to make changes. Um, it's interesting, and I speak with a lot of of uh, law enforcement, and there are a lot of law enforcement uh, professionals that that do understand uh, the situation, but. To a, I, I haven't found one who is on the job who is willing to, to speak up publicly. No. Yeah, uh, they difficult. just can't. No, they can't. But when they leave the force, yeah, it's really interesting talking to those guys. Because, There's an organization. Um, There's an organization of retired police that actually yeah. support you know ending the war on drugs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they they do a they do a phenomenal job, and they speak all over the country, and they do, and they've yeah. got the the insight, and and uh, you know I've done some. Uh, some work, um, um, you know, with them. I'm familiar with their organization. We tried to get them on the uh, show, but they didn't like that we don't censor. Yeah, so. <laughs> we tried to get them on our show, but we we're uncensored. We you know we don't always use we use colorful language. What can I say? I mean that's just the way that's just the way it is. And you tell it, you tell, tell it like it is. We, well, that. that's the way we are. That's the way we roll. That's why yeah. we get along with Claudia so well. That's the way she rolls. Like we don't we cut through the bullshit. We want to get right to the to the issue. Um, and that's but it, a but lot- it is too bad that law enforcement can't speak out um, because right now, I mean, even with all that's going on right now with them. Um, suicide is the highest cause of death for, for active law enforcement. Jeez. It's higher than, than on the job, um, you know, line of duty death. Um, so there's a real problem with law enforcement. Um, I mean, they're no longer the good guys. Um, they're not able to, to get citizens helping them to solve actual crime. Um, you know, so it's, it's, uh, um, and they, if, if they're, if they're astute at what they're doing, um, I mean, you were asking about the, the the destructive policies. I mean, one in five people sitting in jail isn't based on a conviction. They can't afford bail. Um, so they're sitting in jail. And in the day of COVID, sitting in jail and not being able to afford bail or being arrested and thrown in jail on a 72-hour hold, which they're willing to, it varies from states, but it's on the average of 72 hours. They can throw you in jail while they're researching what's going on, you know, and, and whether they're going to charge you. Um, I found it really interesting that they didn't put a 72-hour hold on the, on the police officer in the, the uh, George Floyd case. He was out. But if, if uh, someone is uh, uh, suspected of, you know, they, they smell pot on somebody and, and uh, pull them over, they can, they can throw them in jail for 72 hours. And you can't put post bail even if you've got the money because they haven't charged you yet, so you don't know what bail is. So, but, you know, you're sitting there and you may end up with COVID, so it can be a death mm. sentence. I have a question. President Trump, um, was he, 
I mean, I don't know President Trump, obviously. All of this stems from the Nixon administration. Can a president change everything? Can a president erase what Nixon has done addressing the war on drugs? Well, it's it's not quite that easy, and, and we've we've ended up with um, creating our own mess because back even prior to Nixon, uh, in 1961, the first UN treaty uh, basically exported punitive drug policy. So right now, if we legalize drugs in this country, um, we would be in violation of of the UN uh, treaty. Mm. So, but, but keep in mind that we have a lot of clout at the UN and basically, uh, you know, the powers that be at the UN and, and I, I quote those and give the names and, and, uh, the information on that. Um, but, the, the it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be, uh, incredibly difficult in my opinion for the U S to put pressure on the UN. And I think the UN would like to be able to change those those treaties but that's one of the reasons um portugal um you know we've all uh, heard the success stories of of uh, portugal absolutely um, they decrim they decriminalized rather than legalized and the reason they did that is that that's the farthest that they felt like they could push it um because of the u.n treaty oh. they would have liked to have legalized but they could decriminalize even that they you know they got in a little hot water with the with the u.n but um, you know, it, 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 but if they had legalized, they, uh, you know, it, it may have been a, a bigger issue. But, um, you know, they're, they're a good example, though. Their, um, uh, their drug-induced death rate, their, their, uh, their overdose rate is 150th that of the United States uh-huh. and five times lower than the EU average. And yeah. they've decriminalized everything. Yeah, yeah they're and, having great and- success. Yeah, they are. Yeah, it's not like we would have to be starting from scratch. I mean, let's just use some common sense. Look at what's working. And, you know, and, and build on that. I think uh, our prediction here is that once Oregon passes their decriminalization of drug law in November 2020, that mm-hmm. states are going to follow that path because that's kind of the, that's the way the cannabis movement had to start. It had to start with getting signatures, putting an initiative on the ballot, showing the politicians this is what we want, like in Michigan. When we voted mm-hmm. recreational drugs in Michigan, we got 70% of the people in Michigan to vote yes for this law. That sends a yeah. strong message to the politicians. It says, hey, yes, it you does. know, we want this, we want cannabis. And if you want to be holding your office, then you're going to, you're going to make laws that, that we want, you know? And I think in well, Oregon, there's, a, there's another real pressure there too, that, that they will never admit, but there's a real economic benefit to the state. Oh, of course. Uh, of, uh, you know, of legalizing. They have to be a little bit careful about that though, because if they tax too much, um, the, there's still going to be a black market black that will come market, in and undercut yeah, them. And yeah. we've seen that in some of the states, particularly in California. But, uh, oh, but in you Michigan. know, when, when you, yeah, yeah. In Michigan, in yeah. Canada, so Canada's black market is half of yeah. their overall, in Canada, weed is totally legal there too. Their black yep. market is either half or double. Damn it. I don't want to misquote this. But their black market is huge. Anyways, it does. Yeah. You're yeah. exactly right. Yeah, we, and they we, actually did a pretty good job initially when they set it up of, of uh, you know, trying to circumvent that some. Um, but, you know, when, when governments are spending too much money on, on stupid things like the war on drugs and then they want to uh, to tax things, um, you know, to the extent. You know the the market is is going to uh, to dictate if you're if you're charging me too much, I'm still going to go to the black market. So there's got to be that balance. But I do think the economic end of it uh, is going to uh, to help 
you know, as far as, as uh, um, moving toward legalization. I think the cat's out of the bag as far as, as uh, the trend toward that. And I don't think any of us would have predicted how quickly uh, the trend has, has changed as far as cannabis and, and now psilocybin. And, um, you know, we really, things can change pretty quickly. Psilocybin is, got, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm sorry. No, that's, that's okay. It's just, uh, yeah, we can, we can see change pretty quickly uh, when you've got policy that is so destructive uh, and when, uh, when we've got a generation coming up that has had personal experience with arrest and uh, the, the negatives of all of this. So I think it's, uh, you know, eventually it's going to happen. It's just how many lives do we destroy before it does. Mm. Yeah, I would love to see. I think psilocybin is the next one. And decriminalized nature is doing a fantastic job at uh, decriminalizing psilocybin. They're in over 100 mm-hmm. cities, very active right now. Um, they, they started in Denver, then Oakland, obviously. And now you're talking about the state of New York uh, taking it off, you know, you know not recognizing or decriminalizing it off the schedule, uh, the drug mm-hmm. schedule. So I think psilocybin is wonderful. Uh, I've been using it now for a couple of years. I was microdosing for a little while, but um, mm-hmm. kind of got off of that. But I've just been using it recreationally lately. And I mm-hmm. think it's great. I mean, I don't, there, there's obviously different effects. It's just kind of like marijuana. There's different strains. There's different effects depending on how much you take and whatever. But I just well, think. that's how complex this can be. I mean, and, and, yes. and we think that somebody, you know, sitting on their pedestal in Washington can dictate what, you know, what substance might work best for somebody. It's, you know, no, it's, it's, uh, that's one yeah. of, that's a very good point. And I think, I think before you make a drug law, before you, are part of that or before you run for office to dictate some of these things you should try some of these things you should i think politicians should all try psilocybin i don't think we would have any war going on right now because (laughs) everything's a war you know they got a war on everything and it's just it's a sad state um and it's a lot of it's greed a lot of it's money it's you know human nature i guess but it's 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 the good old it's the good versus evil it really is at this point it's it's ca- it's it's not capitalism because we really haven't had true capitalism but it's it's kind of this yeah. government control and it's kind of this world control over the population about you know these different substances and it's a very complex issue all these substances do totally different things to different people based mm-hmm. on their usage and i think if you have responsible people using these things with regulation i think it could be a great success for for the world to sit back and say you know this is one less thing we have to worry about enforcing and not only that but now we have a safe alternative i don't have to worry that car fentanyl is in my cocaine i don't have to worry that you know that i got moldy marijuana from growing in someone's basement or i got some subpar you know i got some mdma laced with something or i got some meth that was made out of uh wasp spray or whatever i mean we cover all these stories so we know all this is some weird stuff that goes on talking well and it's not only the people that are are uh, for for uh, for drug users we would probably overall have a lower rate of drug use if people could experiment determine what what fits their needs um and cannabis is a good example in the, the areas where, where cannabis is then uh been legalized uh opioid use has, has uh, been reduced it works well for some people yeah for some people, um, yeah. you know so but it, you know so we, we may very well have lower rates of, of drug use um uh, you know if it if it was uh, legalized and there's no doubt 
um, with the, the statistics from the places that, ha- that it has been legalized, that the 18 to 25-year-old um, drug use and access to drugs goes, goes down um, when it's legalized because the, the guy on the street that's you know, selling the, the joint has everything else and they're not checking IDs. If things are legal, uh, it's, it is more difficult to, uh, you know, for the youth to, to get it. I mean, I've, I've talked to a lot of kids who said, yeah, I, I, I switched cannabis because I couldn't get alcohol. <laughs> you know, right. so it's, it's not like having the, the more on drugs is, is uh, protecting people. But, uh, you know, on the safety issue, it's not only the drug users. Um, you know, but we're looking at the SWAT raids um, since the late 1970s. That's increased by 15,000 yeah. percent. We've got kids, you know, sitting in houses, and it's not because... It is the drug dealer. It's because somebody, you know, called somebody and, and said, hey, I think something might be going on in this house and they're breaking down doors. Um, you know, and, and we're funding terrorism through the cartels and, and uh, you know, looking at the, the deaths in, in uh, Mexico because of the cartels. And, and uh, you know, so it really puts, it puts everyone at risk, um, you know, regardless of, of their, their uh, drug use or not. It there does. needs to be a new conversation surrounding cannabis. I'm, I'm, I live on the Massachusetts Rhode Island line, and I was with my daughter in Massachusetts last week, and I said, oh, look, Ava, every, there's billboards every, I don't know, 100 feet. Can, get your cannabis here. Get your cannabis here. I just started to see those. I said, maybe these have been up for a while. But if you go into Rhode Island, it's illegal, so you can be in Massachusetts and drive two minutes further, and if you get pulled over, you're going to have a problem. Mm-hmm. So why why are we not making cannabis legal in all 50 states? It seems like it's a, a bitch of a thing to do in Alabama, my southern state. Um, mm-hmm. What's the big deal? Make cannabis legal. Be done with it. Well, there's pros and cons to that. I mean, eventually the federal government is going to have to deal with this because even in Massachusetts, technically, uh, the feds can come in and raid those those uh, um, those uh, dispensaries uh, or arrest somebody because federally it's still illegal. They, um, so they did that for a while this. here. Yeah, they did that in Michigan for like the first year. And yeah. then, uh, well, after, and, and yeah. we were really worried when uh, when Jeff Sessions was was the AG oh, because yeah. he was you know he was threatening to go after uh, Barr has said that he will not do that, um, but he you know he could change his mind any time. You have a different AG, so technically the feds can come in at any point, and and uh, um, and and we've got all kinds of problems you know, with the, the banking uh, for the dispensaries. Um, no, the federal government spends spends over a million dollars a year just paying somebody to deal with the cash payments of taxes um, from the the dispensaries because they can't pay by check because they're not allowed to have bank accounts in most cases. Yeah, they can't. Uh, and there's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, yeah, it's it's crazy. But I don't know if we do want the federal government having control of everything because I'm not sure we would have ever had the movement that we have being able to do it state by state because at least we can start the movement state by state, and then that will put pressure eventually on the federal government. So if we give too much power to the federal government, there's benefits, you know, and, and you have to look at the constitutional powers and, and uh, states' rights and, and all of that. But, uh, but if, we, if we put too much power in the federal government, um, then it also makes it more difficult for change from the bottom up. Yeah. So now the negative is, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, the, the variations, uh, you know, be, between states. But you even see from county to county variations in, in application of, of drug law. 
you know, you can be in one county and, and they'll uh, you know, pick you up and it might, it might uh, get you to treatment. And the next county, you know, you're in, in deep trouble and you might end up in prison for a couple of years. So, so much of it is, is just so arbitrary on, um, you know, and, and unfortunately uh, a lot of it depends um, and, and it depends on the, the color of your skin. Yeah. Um, although I, I have to say it, that's not the only factor. I mean, our family, I'm, you know, we're, we're white middle class and, and, you know, we have absolute horror stories as far as, as things that have happened uh, to, you know, to our family and, and to, uh, to other families that are, are similar, but, uh, um, you know, I, I don't think that, I, I think it's easy for people to, to look at, um, what's going on right now in the streets. And, and, but it concerns me because I think there has been some hijacking, uh, as far as the, the, the true protests, uh, that sure. are going on, but I, the message, the message is the yeah. loss with yeah. George Floyd. And we turned now with the, just the horrible, political situation and it's confusing to most because it is and i think we had a lot of people really i mean i had a lot of phone calls after that video came out saying you know okay i i, I get it i didn't quite believe it could be this bad but i mean i saw it with my own eyes i you know i i get it um you know but now we're back to um well you know we obviously need law and order and you know all of that but i do think that in trying to understand how it could be hijacked and why there's the level of anger out there um, I, you know, that goes back to, to looking at the numbers. We have more black Americans in U.S. prisons um, and on probation than we had slaves before the Civil War. Mm. I mean, it's just astounding. Um, you know, and then we wonder why, why black children are growing up without fathers. It's because we've locked them up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, really, it's really sad. And then uh, so many people look at, well, the, you know, um, the numbers aren't, aren't that high with the, you know, with with the police killings of of black individuals. Um, well, even one is 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 way too high. But what they don't understand is the destroyed lives with the harassment and the uh, the the jail time and the probation requirements and and how much that screws up life and wipes out opportunity and and uh, you know that on a daily basis when. Uh, when someone's living with that, that creates anger. And when they see an opportunity to be able to let that anger out, um, yeah. It, yeah. It, it helps me to understand what's going on. And, and yeah. I'm, I'm sad that it's happening that way because I, I really would like this to, to promote change and hopefully it will. But yeah, I think it is, it is confusing for people, but yeah. I do understand. It's a lot it. to follow. It's a lot to, you know, and after wit- what I've witnessed the past four weeks, after reading your book, after watching a few documentaries, I, you know, I closed the book. I said, now I get it. Now I understand mm. the outrage. And like I said, uh, you know, being a court reporter all those years, coming from a cop family and my girlfriends are all cops, you know, I saw one side of it. And yeah. now I acknowledge the other side. You know, the pain community, they've been forced to learn about the war on drugs because it's been shoved in their faces. You're not getting your pain medication anymore because yeah. of the war on drugs and your doctor's in prison. Because of the war on drugs and the yeah. pain patients, like, what is the war on drugs? How does this affect me? Yeah. I'm not an addict. And I know the pain community, they believe that addicts have, they've got this great life. They can get their medication and they don't yeah, understand they harm yeah. reduction. And I didn't understand harm reduction. Colleen, take, I, I don't know much about this. If, um, if you've got a kid who's, really sick, really struggling with addiction, and he goes to prison. 
Is he able to um, receive medication while he's in prison? Is he able in most cases, he can't. And what's really sad is there are, and, and I literally get calls and letters constantly from parents who are just distraught that put a lot of money into treatment for their, their son or daughter. They're now doing well. Sometimes they've been on uh, on medications for a year. They've done well. They're back to um, living their lives, being tax-paying citizens. Now their file comes to the top of the pile for some prosecutor. They're prosecuted. They they don't dare go to trial because they could be looking at you know seven to ten years or you know just ungodly amounts of time for a couple of pills in a pocket. And so they take a plea agreement end up in jail or prison and not only will they not allow them to be on on or you know put them on medications if they need them those medications that they were successfully on will be taken away and they will go through withdrawal behind bars and then when they're let out the chances of of their their uh, uh relapse is very very high because they've been through hell their dopamine levels are completely screwed up um, and and they didn't have access to their medications. So the chances of them either relapsing and ending up back in, in prison for even longer or dying of overdose are, are huge. So you've taken somebody who's actually succeeded against all odds, and now you screw them up and throw them in jail and take away their medical care. That also happens, and, and this is kind of personal to me because it happened to our, our son, and he didn't do very long um you know he wasn't in in jail for for very long um he probably would have been um you know i i i was able to to make some arguments that you know that uh, um, not everyone can make um but he was also on other medications that he was deprived of um so he was a medical mess after you know a, a couple of weeks um because his system was so screwed up he, he you know he had to co- be cold turkey on everything um, at the same time, he's you know basically put in a cage with with no decent medical care, and this happens all the time. Uh, so I, I I totally get it when pain patients are frustrated um, with the addiction community, but we really we are in the same boat. Um, either way, it is it is depriving medical care, um, you know, based on on escalation of the war on drugs. And if we if we can pull together on that, we've got more clout to, to get this changed. Absolutely. That's why, you know, that's why Tim, Dave, and myself, that's why we collaborated. And at first there was a little risk. I said, oh my God, you know, I'm putting my name on the Daily Addict. And people said, what are you doing? You know, you're right. You, you go into their side. I said, no. I said, and there's number and there's power in numbers. We have to have a strong united fight. Mm-hmm. Nobody's well, we can learn them. from each other because we're all we're all experiencing the same things, but with different twists. Yeah. Oh, I, I know I have. I've learned so much. You know, there's a chapter in your book. Well, there's two things. I think, you know, when Bill Clinton passed that three strikes and you're out, that was mm-hmm. probably the biggest disaster ever because now judges can't even make decisions. Yeah. Judges have to go with with the law. A judge can't, doesn't even have the autonomy to, you know, make a decision on his or her own because of this three strikes. Yeah. This, and you know who the co-sponsor of that was? Joe, Joe Biden. Biden. Joe Biden yeah. and, and Bill Clinton. 
passed some of the harshest drug sentencing laws in this country's ever seen. No doubt about it. A lot yeah. of people blame Reagan. Reagan was tough on drugs. He arrested a lot of people. But if you look at the prison spike under Bill Clinton, his eight years in there, it went from one million to two million. I mean, he, yeah. he, well, he it, added a hundred thousand police officers and oh, he yeah. added nine, 9.7 billion in funding for prisons. SWAT uh, and then he put in some, pre- yeah. yeah. And then he, pre- then he uh, put in some funding for prevention programs and, uh, and had it all written by law enforcement. Yeah. He, <laughs> so, he, 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 did you ever see his speech in front of the N, uh, NCAA, uh, NAACP where he says that he made a mistake? He admits that. I saw that. Yeah, he I made know. a mistake. You know what? But that don't do shit. That doesn't do shit. Right. You 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 did this and you had this policy and you see what it was doing to people for the last three decades, and then yeah. you you're gonna come back over and you're gonna apologize. Like I understand, I under, because everybody because all the focus is on it now. He wouldn't apologize mm-hmm. if nobody was putting any pressure on him. I guarantee you, he don't care. He was too busy on Jeffrey Epstein's island. Anyways, that's a whole different subject. <laughs> <laughs> whole different subject but when, when, I'm, when i'm hearing politicians i try to read between the lines and really try to figure out do they really get it i mean it's not about an apology it's, it's not about um you know giving lip service to something it's do they get it uh and i don't i don't believe they do i don't think uh, they do colleen i have to ask because you're a strong female have you thought about running i don't think i could uh <laughs> I don't think I could handle the bureaucracy. Um, you know, it's it's unfortunately um, so much of of uh, politics now is is fundraising and compromise and all of those things. I'm not sure I'm built for that. I'd much rather support people who, um, uh, you know, who are are willing to do that and be out speaking and and you know, like you said, I like to be able to say what I want to say and and. Uh, uh, not have to worry. Um, and uh, so I, I'm, I'm not sure that I have the right personality. Unfortunately, um, I think that's kind of becoming the case in politics, though. So I'm not sure we're getting the right people in politics either Mm-mm. for the challenge. No, because you know, thanks. I, pre- I appreciate the, the uh, you know, <laughs> the confidence. Well, hopefully, hopefully one of these politicians will scoop you up for policy advice because I think you got sure. some good ideas. No, I, I, I would, you got that some I would love ideas. to do. I think yeah. you got some good ideas. I seen, I saw your TED talk, um, and then did you end up speaking at the Cato Institute as well? Did you end up doing that, or yes. did COVID come in? Well, okay. yes, I no, I, it COVID did come in, so we were supposed to do it live, and I was disappointed because we had some pretty heavy hitters as far as as policy people coming to that uh, that book forum, uh, and we ended up having to do it by video. Um, but I, I do have that. Uh, uh, the video version of that book forum, which is an hour and a half uh, interview, uh, and that is on on my website. There's a lot of videos and and things on the website, but the Cato inter- uh, interview is is on that. So how do people, how do people find you? How do people find your website? What is your website? How how do they find uh, you on there? Uh, WarOnUs.com. Okay, and there's uh, there's free sample chapters and and uh, yeah videos and, and things on there on. And uh, and we just uh, a couple of days ago um, put out the audio version of the book, oh, uh, so that's available on Amazon. Uh, and when you go on Amazon, you, if you don't belong to Audible, you don't have to join. You just click on it, and then you can actually, uh, you know, just buy a single audio book if if you choose to. But but that's uh, that's newly out. So nice. That's good. So uh, I hate reading, so that's my kind of book. <laughs> <laughs> Colleen, it was a pleasure talking with you. I um, 
you know, I have a chance to, to speak with a lot of, you know, amazing people and you emailed me and I said, oh, why is this lady emailing me? Because I have a lot of emails. You have a lot of emails, but it mm-hmm. was just the perfect combination. Um, I know Tim and Dave. And when I said, oh, I just spoke with this lady, Colleen Cowles. And they said, no way. I've been trying to get in touch with Colleen Cowles. <laughs> She's super nice. And we've just, I've learned so much about this. And, you know, my advocacy has brought me to the life of an addict, the life of a pain patient. Sadly, the life of our doctors who are behind prison. I know, you know, I just spoke with Dr. Bauer over a Facebook messenger and they held him on over one point million something dollars. He's 83 years old. And And he's just trying to help his patients. Yeah. And he's the kindest man. But these prosecutors, you know, they need to advance their careers and the more pleased, the better. It's just this vicious circle. It's so sad for our country. It's so sad for my elderly, all of my pain patients. It's sad for moms who have yeah. children struggling with addiction, but hopefully well, taxpayers should be pretty upset about it too, because it's been a colossal waste of money and what they're buying is their own uh, you know, medical care going, going down the toilet here. So uh, what I'm really hoping with the book, and the reason I've got so many citations in the back is that I know that when a lot of us are talking about this, we're questioned. Uh, so we've got to have the credibility. Uh, so every one of, of, uh, of the claims made in the book, uh, I've got proven with citations. And part of my logic there is anybody who's talking about it, if any of your listeners have ever been in a conversation and you've been arguing these points and somebody uh, you know, argued the other side, you can win the argument if you've got the citations and the, the facts. And so that's, that's one of the, the goals of the book is to, to give some power to the people that are out there talking, because the more of us that are out there speaking out, uh, the more we can bring this to the forefront. Oh, that's so true. I learned that the hard way the first time I debated a lawmaker, and I didn't have yeah. that. And now I, I have facts. You, you have to, because you just don't have a chance. You don't, you don't have a leg to stand on when you're debating. Yeah. Um, I'm going to let the guys wrap up this show. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, thanks. Yes. Yes. So if you need, if you need to, you know, our pain patients out there and our our chronic pain patients and people that are supporting, uh, the cause with Claudia, you know how to reach her, you know, where she's at. Uh, you can either reach her at the doctor patient forum. Um, you can reach her. uh, If you want to get involved, you can go to don't punish pain rally, uh, com. And also, Please, if you haven't read The War on Us, it's an all it's an awesome book. You guys know I talk about it all the time. You're probably sick of it. You probably we know about the war on us, Tim. Shut the hell up. But it, listen, <laughs> you can listen to it, okay? You don't have to read it. Or you can just keep listening to the podcast because I guarantee that I use a lot of quotes out of this book. I lot I use a lot of statistics out of uh, uh this book. And I've I've called this book our manifesto on this show because a lot of times people want to, we report on drug bust stories and we make jokes and lights of things only be, for entertainment value. But at the core, this is a very serious, very serious issue. And we're just thankful that Colleen wrote this book. She's involved with this, it's helping. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much. Um, we hope to have you again someday. That would be awesome. Well, thanks for all that you're doing. You're uh, doing good work. Thank you. Thank you. 
Night, everybody. That means a lot to me. Thank you. Thank you.